Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Since the pandemic has limited us for the most part to indoor home entertainment, you may feel like you've watched every series or movie available for streaming. If that's the case, why not step back into the 20th century and re-watch or discover one of those films considered an undisputed masterpiece. And if you're among those who must consult Rotten Tomatoes before viewing anything, please note that Casablanca has a 99% tomato meter score and Rotten Tomatoes describes the movie as Hollywood's quintessential statement on love and romance. Further, Casablanca, made in 1942, has only improved with age, boasting career-defining performances from Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. Today, we'll do a deep dive into Casablanca. The film Casablanca actually began as another movie in the Warner Brothers studio roster, but quickly took on a life of its own. And it's a phenomenon which persists to this day. The book... We'll Always Have Casablanca, was written by Noah Eisenberg, the George Christian Centennial Professor and Chair of the Department of Radio TV Film at the University of Texas, Austin. Previously, he taught at the New School in New York City, where he was Professor of Culture and Media and the founding director of Screen Studies. Going back to the very beginning, Professor Eisenberg explains, Casablanca was inspired by a high school teacher's trip to Europe. Murray Burnett was a 27-year-old high school English teacher here in New York City, and he was an aspiring playwright, uh, a recent graduate of Cornell University, um, and in the summer of 1938, he and his wife, Frances, they, they traveled to Europe. Um, Murray Burnett had inherited a bit of money from an uncle, and he'd always wanted to cross the Atlantic, so they did so. Uh, and this, is, this is just months after the Nazi Anschluss, or annexation of Austria, and that's in fact where they ended up. They arrived in Antwerp, and they were sent on to Vienna to help Francis's extended family there smuggle out precious belongings. Jews and other political undesirables at that point in time were forbidden from taking any, if they were lucky enough to secure exit visas and leave Nazi-engulfed Austria, they were forbidden from taking uh, their their valuables with them. And so they smuggled out uh, jewelry, uh, a long fur coat that Francis wore on the train in, a, I think, a rather warm day in the summer of 1938. And they ultimately made their way uh, across the demarcation lines and into what was still then free France. 
um, to celebrate. They were they were in the south of France, is where they where they finally found themselves after taking a train to Paris and then onward to to the south of France. They were just on the outskirts of Nice, um, and they wanted to go celebrate uh, their their their. Uh, Achievement in smuggling out these these valuables, and so they went to a, a nightclub uh, on the bluffs overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, and it was a nightclub that was frequented by a a diverse clientele, people of all different nationalities, a babel of foreign tongues were spoken, and uh, on the piano was a uh, a black man from Chicago, a crooner who was singing a medley of jazz standards, and it was in that very setting, smoky, smoky nightclub, all those different foreign languages, people of all different political stripes and backgrounds, that Murray Burnett turned to his wife, Frances, and said, this would make a heck of a setting for a play. Oh. And so he wrote a three, yeah. <laughs> so he wrote a three-act stage play called Everybody Comes to Rick's with his writing partner, Joan Allison, just a, a summer later here in New York City. Yeah, what was the background of that partnership and and their method of collaboration. Yeah, so 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 Joan, Joan Allison was uh, a good decade uh, older than than Mary Burnett. She was a divorcee with a few children, and had much much more experience in the theater world here in New York City. And she, and so he he really turned to her for for advice for counsel, um, and and many of the ideas that went into that three act stage play. Everybody comes to Rick's. Uh, came from her. Now, the, the the origin of the story, though, goes back to what I just told you, that, that, that fateful journey to Europe in the summer of 1938. Um, Marie Burnett, though, would sit at the, sit at the, the typewriter, and, and Joan Allison liked to pace, so she would pace and smoke. She was a chain smoker at the time, as many people were. And uh, he would peck at, you know, hunt and peck at, those, at the keys, and and they would do this often after after school. He was an English uh, high school teacher, as I, as I mentioned moments ago, and so he would come over to Joan uh, Allison's place here in Midtown uh, Manhattan, uh, and uh, they would they would work for hours on end. Um, they had met at one of the the beach clubs uh, here in in in, uh, in just just on the south shore of, of Long Island, and they struck up a friendship. People often speculated whether there was more to it than th- that their partnership was maybe there was romance. But I was uh, in the many interviews that I conducted for this book. It was Murray Burnett's uh, widow who assured me that there was, in fact, it was just merely a, pro- a professional relationship, but a very productive productive one at that. And uh, this three act stage play that they that they wrote uh, in the summer of 19, 1940 um, was what then ultimately made its way to Burbank, California, and to the to the you know the studio at Warner Brothers. Uh, and it was a woman named Irene Lee who was then the head of the story department at Warner's who had the good sense to snap this up. The the three-act stage play arrived there just the day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and it was a very, very timely subject. And it was Irene Lee who convinced Hal B. Wallace, the great uh, producer at Warner Brothers, who was beginning to do a number of signature Hal B. Wallace productions. He had done a Now Voyager just a few months prior. Um, she convinced Hal Wallace to to take on the project, and, mm. and so that's what they did. And they they paid the princely sum of twenty thousand dollars, which is the most money ever paid for an unproduced stage play at that time. Uh, it was uh, double of what they'd pay for, for the the rights to Dashiell Hammett's The Maltese Falcon just a, a year prior. Yeah, and so it was never really a play. I mean, it was no, not- no, no, no. Exactly. They, they, they initially. You're, you're absolutely correct. They had shopped it around. They had a, a, an agent on Forty Second Street, uh, and they'd hoped, as any any self-respecting playwright at that at that at that period would, would would do so, they hoped that they would they, they would have a run on Broadway. When there were no takers on Broadway, they figured, what the hell? Let's give it a whirl in Hollywood, and that's what they did. So you have this high school English teacher still in his twenties taking a trip that turns out to be transformative. I mean, Vienna in 1938 um, clearly altered his worldview for life and, and informed this entire story. Would you talk about the refugee trail? Sure. Um, so while Murray and Francis were in Vienna in that fateful summer of '38, among the the encounters that they had is with with these with these languishing refugees, uh, many of them waiting, uh, quite a few of them waiting in vain to secure exit visas, 
uh, to leave Nazi-engulfed Austria at that time. Um, but the refugee trail at that point led, and this is, you know, it's quite fitting that, that Marie and Francis traveled on to, to, to uh, Paris. The, the trail then generally led onward to Marseille and from Marseille uh, to, to Lisbon, to Portugal. And that was the main point of embarkation. That's when you get in the, in the, in the historical prologue to the film. So when their three-act stage play was transformed uh, into, into Casablanca by the Epstein twins and Howard Koch, when you have that opening prologue, this is uh, that, that sort of folksy March of Time narration that we hear, it, 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 it points that to that very refugee trail and tells us that, that Lisbon, which is historically, historically accurate, was the major point of, of, of embarkation. And in fact, a number of the refugees who played in the film followed that very, very path. If you think, for instance, of Marcel Dalio, who is uh, Emile de Croupier at, at, at Rick's Café, he and his wife... Uh, this is uh, Madeleine Lebeau, who was the last surviving cast member in the production. She was a 19-year-old who plays Yvonne, Rick, Rick's on-again, off-again paramour. We see her in the, in the first, first reel of the film, and then she returns on the arm of a Nazi soldier later in the picture. Um, they had traveled that very route. They were married at the time, and they left Paris just in the, uh, after the, the, the fall of France, made their way to Marseille, onward to Lisbon, and using forged visas, they boarded a, a, a Portuguese freighter bound for Mexico, and in Mexico they managed to procure Canadian visas that would make it possible for them to cross the border into California. Nearly all of the 70-plus actors in the film were immigrants, in fact. Why doesn't Casablanca address the persecution of Jews specifically? It's an excellent question and one that many people have, have asked uh, when, when I've been traveling around and, 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 and giving uh, book talks. Um, and it's, it's, it's one that today seems so hard for us to get our heads around, for, for us to, to understand why wouldn't you address the very target of the Nazi persecution. Uh, and of course, there were others who were targeted, but the principal target of Nazi persecution. And the, 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 the answer is, is really quite simple. Um, between the jazz singer and, and gentleman's agreement, crossfire maybe a year before, but basically a two-decade stretch, you almost never, ever have Jews addressed on screen as Jews. And so in this particular film, again, going back to the interviews that I conducted, there's a wonderful interview with Andre Asiman, uh, who wrote, among other things, that the novel Call Me By Your Name that was recently adapted to the screen. Um, but he's a great fan of the film. And we were talking, and he says to me, he says, you know, Noah, the, the, the Jews, they're, they're, they're all over the screen, but nowhere in the picture. And so <laughs> they're there, but we don't actually have them identified as such. And the reason for that was that studios were loath to rock the boat. They just didn't want to. And in addition to that, so, so that, that, that's one piece of the argument and only one piece. The other piece is that many of the people, uh, it, it, even involved in this production, the director, for instance, Michael Curtiz, Hungarian-born director, he had family that was unaccounted for at that point in time. Um, Cuddles, so S.C. Sakal, another Hungarian-born uh, refugee, the the actor who plays Carl, the waiter, the jovial, jowly fellow. Um, he had family that was stranded. Many in the case of both Curtis and and Essie Sakal, these people would perish in the camps, and and so they were very very concerned that by you know were they to to, to address the uh, the so called Jewish question um, and to identify these refugees by their religion or ethnicity that that could even jeopardize more people who were, who were stranded in Europe. So there was, there was a reluctance there as well. But, um, uh, so but in the yeah. story, in the film, are you mm -hmm. saying that the actors would then be interchangeable? Because it seems like more of a studio decision. Uh, you're absolutely correct. It is a studio decision. The, the, the irony here, and you're correct, among the, the 70, 75 uh, uh, actors enlisted in the production, nearly all of them were European-born, many of them refugees from, 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 from Nazi-engulfed Europe. Um, and so the, the, the irony here is that they're playing refugees on, so they're refugees playing refugees on screen, and nearly all of them were at least nominally Jewish. There are, of course, exceptions. You can think, for instance, of Konrad Veit, who plays Major Strasser, the, the great Nazi official, and he was married to a Jewish uh, theater actor, a woman named Lili Prager, a Hungarian woman. 
Um, and so on principle, he fled Nazi Germany. The Nazis would have been thrilled. He was such a distinguished, decorated actor during the Weimar years. He w- they would have been thrilled to enlist him in their productions. But he left on principle. Same is true of Paul Henry, who plays Victor Laszlo. <laughs> but many of the other, almost all of the other, I should say, European-born actors uh, enlisted in the production were at least nominally Jewish meaning that, well, perhaps they didn't practice, but that's why they ended up, you know, that's why they were targeted by Hitler, and that's why they had to flee Europe. Well, if not specifically saying the word Jew on screen, um, Warner Brothers is to be admired. You write, the specter of war and the big moral decisions that came with it permeated everything from the source material of Casablanca to the very climate in which it emerged. In what way was Warner Brothers unusual regarding Nazism? Well, Warner Brothers was really one of the first studios to actively participate in 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 the the anti-Nazi cause, so to speak, uh, to such a degree that when Harry Warner in, in September of 1941 was brought in to testify before Congress, he was accused, and this was the, year, the word that was used, of being a premature anti-fascist. They had made pictures already in th- from 38 onward that addressed the Nazi menace, at least allegorically, if not uh, uh, explicitly, for instance, in, in, in um, Confessions of a Nazi Spy from 1939. And so... He, there was a very vocal nativist uh, and in many, many respects anti-Semitic faction in Congress at that time that, that brought in Harry Warner and accused him of beating the drums of war. Um, what Harry Warner, who was really the moral conscience of the studio, his brother Jack handled the finances, but Harry Warner said, we're not doing anything other than showing the world what's really happening across the globe. And uh, and they were they, 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 they this was recognized. It was recognized by by critics, by actors. It was Groucho Marx who, in 1938, said that Warner Brothers was the only studio in town with any guts, hmm. um, because many of the other studios were really reluctant to engage in what then later, after Pearl Harbor, came to be known as, of course, the Allied war effort. But this was this is even before we were in the fight, so to speak. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. We're listening to my conversation with the film historian Noah Eisenberg about his book, We'll Always Have Casablanca. Noah, among the many things to be learned from reading your book is how collaborative the writing process is for movies. Many writers rewriting each other's work often together, some responsible for just one line. Would you tell us about the Epstein brothers? What was their strength? What they called champagne comedy is what they were really best known for. They were known for adapting stage plays to the screen, and they were known for giving it that kind of bubbly, effervescent wit. Um, and so a lot of the lines, for instance, many of the lines that, that, that Claude Rains's character, Captain Renault, that he, these real zingers, those are, are really attributed to, to Julius and Philip Epstein, the boys as they were known on the lot. This cafe is closed until further notice. Clear the room at once. How can you close me up? On what ground? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. And they had a real anti-authoritarian streak, and they, a big, as I, as I write in the book, you know, the butt of their jokes was was was, was mainly Jack Warner, and and uh, they they stole stationery from Jack Warner. There's a very funny, m- many many pranks that they did, but one of the funniest I I find is is. Uh, they were both students at, at uh, Penn State, and that's where they got involved in theater. They were both uh, uh, boxers as well, uh, so they were kind of punchy, punchy guys from 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 New York's uh, Lower East Side. And um, they got a hold of Jack Warner stationery, and a friend of theirs from Penn State, uh, a Gentile fellow, was in was in 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 uh, New York 
trying to get work as an actor. And so they wrote to him, and I, I wish I could tell you the name of him. I'm just going to call him for now uh, Patrick O'Connor. But so they write to their dear friend, and they say that, you know, we, we envision, uh, on, on Jack Warner Stationery, mind you, we envision a, a wonderful career for you ahead of you, but, but henceforth you shall be known as Hyman Rabinowitz, <laughs> is what they say. <laughs> and, of course, there's a long tradition in Hollywood, and at Warner's there was no exception to that tradition, of changing names. So, uh, And there were a number of, actually, of, of actors uh, who were contract actors at the time who had gone through such name changes. Edward G. Robinson, for instance, John Garfield. Um, and so, so this was one of the many pranks that that that, that they did. But they uh, also were very engaged in the in the in the fight against Nazism. They they left uh, just after a month of being enlisted in the in the in the writing process. Um, they took off for Washington D.C. and and lent their support to Frank Capra, who was then tapped to oversee the Why We Fight series, a documentary series that was to encourage uh, more patriotic support for the war, um, and was initially shown to, to servicemen and women, um, and then and then to the general public. But they 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 uh, they worked on the first in that series, a film called Prelude to War, and. Uh, uh, and then they came back, and I think there was a real sense of sort of spirited in, in engagement. So they, they they added that as well. Howard Koch, though, was the one who was known for being a bit more um, politically minded in his writing. He would go on to write Mission Mission to Moscow, a film that would get him into trouble during the HUAC years. Um, but but Howard Koch was was also a, a very important. Uh, uh, writer in this, as you write, it's, it's really it's a it's a patchwork, mm-hmm. um, and you have a number of of writers involved. So there's Howard Koch, and there are the Epstein twins. Those are the three who won the Oscar for best adapted uh, screenplay. You do have, however, also Casey Robinson, who'd written Now Voyager. I mentioned that before. That's the blustery melodrama starring Betty Davis and Paul Henry. This was one of the first of of, uh, of Hal Wallace's signature productions at Warner Brothers. Um, and Casey Robinson was known for his ability to write that kind of blustery melodrama. And so when they felt that the, they being now Hal Wallace and Mike Curtiz, when they felt that the that the romance was sagging a bit, they brought in, in, in Casey Robinson to help with, there's a nine-minute flashback in the film that's nowhere in the nowhere to be found in the three act stage play and they added that to kind of prop up or get the get the romance up on its feet and so you have Casey Robinson's hand there but this went through a number of other hands as well please talk about Bogart and the character of Rick yeah so Rick it's, it's if we go back to the collaboration between Murray Burnett and Joan Allison uh, Marie Burnett liked to claim that it was it was a, a combination, sort of a composite character. This is the way that, on some level, he saw himself, or he wished he could that that, that he would be. And then also, I guess there was a, a another model, a friend of his from college at Cornell, who also had maybe had a bit more swagger. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was Joan Allison who said, "No, no, no. She had been married, I think, not not just once but twice. Uh, and the men that to whom she had been married were were always these kinds of characters, like uh, a Rick Blaine, but Bogart." who ended up, uh, and it was very, very early on in the production, that both Hal Wallace and Mike Curtiz wrote in one of the, you know, there are lots of studio memoranda that were circulated throughout the production. One of the earliest of these studio memoranda said the the, the, the uh, screenplays being written for Bogart is what Hal Wallace's memorandum to Jack Warner said. Jack Warner had had wanted to know whether maybe George Raft would be a good a good pick as Rick Rick Blaine. Bogart, it turns out, was just perfect for it, even though Bogart himself, Bogart had really worried whether or not he could pull it off as a romantic lead. Um, if you think of him as Sam Spade in The Maltese Falcon just a, a, a year before, you think of all these gun-toting, tough guys, street toughs, um, he really hadn't ever been cast in the role of a romantic lead. And it was his agent, Sam Jaffe, who knew that Bogart, he, 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 could, he could do this. Um, Jack Warner, who... <laughs> Who, who asked? He said, "Who, who would ever want to kiss Humphrey Bogart?" Is what uh, what Jack Warner, <laughs> what Jack Warner uh, publicly asked. Um, but Bogart managed to do this. He was worried about his the height differential between him and, and Ingrid Bergman. Ingrid Bergman was 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 five nine. Uh, Bogart was officially, I think, five five nine. He's probably more about more than five about five eight or so. In that in that flashback that I mentioned moments ago, Bogart's on three or four inch platform shoes when they're dancing oh. cheek to cheek to Perfidia. So he was worried about that. He was worried about his inability to dance. Uh, 
these things didn't matter, it turns out, because as Bogart said late in life, he said he did nothing different in this movie than he'd done in the some 30, 40 movies he'd made prior. It's just that you had a 27-year-old Ingrid Bergman looking at him with that amorous gaze in her eyes, and poof, suddenly he was uh, a romantic lead and also the high, highest-paid actor in Hollywood when the, when the film wrapped, yeah. I was very surprised to read that Bergman said she kissed him but never got to know him. The actor would withdraw, and I guess he didn't socialize with the other. No, no, at least not with her. And when Ingrid Bergman said that I kissed Humphrey Bogart, but I never knew Humphrey Bogart, um, she was she was uh, telling the truth. She she at that time, in order to get a better sense of who this man was. The Maltese Falcon was still in general release, and she would go and watch his performance as Sam Spade over and over again to understand who this who this man was. Um, and so, yeah, there was there was as much as as the on screen chemistry seems to be there, and the romance is just so just fully blown and palpable and 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 wrenching. Uh, off screen, there was nothing. Let's talk more about Ingrid Bergman. What did she bring to Ilsa? Well, we were talking about Lois Meredith, the um, you know the American counterpart, the the the, the slightly more, as I was saying, libertine uh, step 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 sibling, if you like, or alter ego of Ilse Lund. Um, but what Ilse Lund, or what Ingrid, Ber- to be more specific now, Ingrid Bergman brought to the character of Ilse Lund was this kind of European sophistication, that demure, restrained. Sexuality, I, I call it sex appeal without sex in the book, and I think that that's that's exactly it. Um, at least that was my best <laughs> my best swat at it. But um, uh, I, I think that what she what she brings, and this is what something that she did already in in one of her earliest and most famous Swedish productions, a film called Intermezzo, um, a film made by Gustav Molander, was the Swedish uh, Swedish uh, director. And and uh, there was an American remake of the film as well, um, but it was while it was still uh, being shown in New York, Hal Wallace was was instructed to go and and, and and see this film, which he did, and it was there that he got the the great idea to to cast Ingrid Bergman in this role of Ilse Lund. But in that film too, both in the original Swedish as well as the American remake, she plays another character who falls for an older an older man um, and yet the, the the romance as 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 torrid as it might be in the minds of the viewers is not is not uh, depicted in any way and again for the American uh, remake and this is true for Casablanca as well you have the Hayes code that's pro- pro- you know prohibiting any any explicit depiction of sex so that is is uh, is is uh, I think in many ways working in tandem with what Ingrid Bergman brought to this particular role, in that she could suggest, and this was all about suggestion. I mean, this is what screwball comedy was about as well. All that innuendo and the suggestion: don't show, you just suggest. And this is true in Casablanca as well. She is very. There's a kind of evocative eroticism, a suggestive eroticism, but it's not explicitly depicted on screen. And so, what was the role of Paris? Well, that's—I mean, it's a, a the film historian Thomas Doherty, who teaches up at Brandeis University in, in Boston. He, he he argued in a, and he's written a lot on censorship, and in particular on Joseph Ignatius Breen, who was the head of the Production Code Administration. Um, he says that the, the Paris can be seen as a as a as as a code word for sex. So we'll always have Paris, we'll always have sex, basically describing what they had during that torrid affair uh, in the summer just before the Nazis marched into Paris. Um, And if you look at her relationship to Rick, in other words, to Humphrey Bogart's character, versus her relationship to Laszlo, the character played by by Paul Henreid, it's so much more erotic, the relation, the, the kissing, the, the, the passionate embraces and so forth between Rick and Ilza versus just the little peck on the cheek from, from Laszlo. And I was giving a, a, a book talk in, in uh, mainline Philadelphia once. And a woman stands up afterwards. She says, I'm a practicing psychoanalyst, she says. And she says, you know what? She says, Victor Laszlo, Victor is daddy. That is who he is in this film. Uh-huh. And it's Rick. Rick is the lover. And I think that there's something to that. If you look at the way that she 
when, when so when, during the famous scene of the Marseillaise, when when Paul Henry, as as Victor Laszlo, marches down there and tells the band to play the Marseillaise, there are reaction shots that we see. Um, filmed by Arthur Edison, wonderful cinematographer. And we see in those reaction shots, some of them really quite tight, close-ups, um, this admiration. But the admiration that you would show towards a father or a parent, it's not the same as when we see, for instance, when she comes back and visits Rick uh, late night to see if she can get those those letters of transit, those pre- precious letters of transit from him, and the romance is rekindled. There we see them locked in passionate embrace and a, you know, a long kiss, especially for that time period, a relatively long kiss. That's very different from her relationship to Laszlo. Film historian Noah Eisenberg talking about his book, We'll Always Have Casablanca. More of this conversation is ahead on City Lights from WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We'll return to my interview with the film historian Noah Eisenberg about his book, We'll Always Have Casablanca. The movie was released in 1942, And I asked Noah Eisenberg about the impact of the film on the Allied war effort. Well, from the basically the days and certainly the weeks and months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, all feature films made in Hollywood were expected, and this is this is the other censorship body. So we have the Production Code Administration, the Hayes Code, as it's often called. It's dealing with sex, adultery, no crime should go unpunished, and so forth. Um, and then we have what's called the Office of War Information, and the Office of War Information is established just after the Americans finally enter into the fight. And so they're also vetting the the, the screenplays and making sure that on some level they support the Allied war effort. And this is a film that does precisely that. Um, the you know people have argued about that fi- famous final scene, but when when uh, Ilza goes off with Laszlo boards that plane you know bound for Lisbon, which incidentally is is in the three act stage play Everybody Comes to Rick. So this wasn't this wasn't this wasn't written just for the uh, for the screenplay for the film. Um, but when she does so, it, it fulfills it sort of a, kills two birds with one stone. It prevents them from running into hot water regarding the production code administration, regarding the self-censorship body, the Hayes Code, because were she to stay with Rick, it would be tantamount to condoning adultery. So, boom, that's taken care of. The other thing that it does is by boarding that plane with Laszlo, she supports his very important work as the great leader of an underground movement, his anti-Nazi efforts. So, again, it also then it fulfills the needs of the Office of War Information and that support for the Allied war effort. You wrote about a screening that took place at the White House with FDR. Is it fair to suggest that Casablanca may have influenced American foreign policy? That's a, it's an excellent question, and people have speculated, and I would, I would give a, 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 a cautious yes as my response. I mean, I think the very fact that FDR chose to, to, to screen, private screening at the White House, um, this was on, so New Year's Eve, 42 into 43, and, and, and uh, I think that this, is, this was is shortly before the, 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 the Casablanca conference. I think that this was something that, that, that uh, Roosevelt saw as 
jibing with American foreign policy as he conceived it. In the film, you have in the character of Rick Blaine, the character arc of Rick Blaine, you have, you know, those professions of neutrality, the isolationism that America had up until its entry into the war, basically espoused. Um, and so the, you know, I stick my neck out for nobody, a line that Rick Blaine, that Humphrey Bogart says more than once, um, that, that too was in, in keeping with American policy up until Pearl Harbor. And so by, 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 by screening the film uh, on New Year's Eve and the private screening of the White House, I do think that, that, that Roosevelt was sending a message and he would soon be traveling onward to, to that North African outpost, to Casablanca, to meet with Churchill. Um, and, and also at that, at that meeting was uh, Charles de Gaulle, who was the leader of the Free French and been in exile. Um, but I think that, yes, this, this, that, that was the, it wasn't just a, a little distract, a little Hollywood distraction um, in choosing Casablanca for that private screening. Hmm. Please talk about the role of Sam. Yeah. So Arthur Dooley Wilson uh, was born in Texas. He was a drummer, not a piano player. And in fact, it's off screen is one of his bandmates. He played the band called the Red Devils. And one of his bandmates, Elliot Carpenter, is playing off screen. And so what Dooley Wilson is doing in the film is really playing air piano. Um, Dooley Wilson was the only cast member who had actually traveled to, to, to Casablanca. And he, with his, with his band, the Red Devils, they were playing a number of, of performances across Europe, mainly in France, a number of, of performances in Paris. And they then traveled onward in the 20s, I think it was, or it could have been even into the early 30s, um, to, to, to Casablanca. Uh, Dooley Wilson had played a number of minor uh, roles. And it, this was, for him a major breakout performance. And it was a performance that today, especially, you know, there's that scene, and this is one of those cringeworthy lines that people today in 2018, it's just hard for it to, 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 to pass on by without, without stopping and, and raising your brow. And this is when, when Ilse Lund, when, when Igor Bergman asks about the boy. Um, but apart from that cringeworthy line in the film, the performance by Dooley Wilson is a very dignified performance. It is a, a three-dimensional character, as was said in the review in the Amsterdam News, an African-American newspaper here in New York City. It says he's not playing a, a domestic, not a shoeshine boy, not a Pullman porter. He is a full-blown character. Boss. Yeah. Boss, aren't you going to bed? Not right now. Ain't you planning on going to bed in the near future? No. You ever going to bed? No. Well, I ain't sleepy either. He is a, a you know, a confidant and, and friend of, of, of Rick. There's the scene in the in the in the nine minute flashback to Paris for that to that summer in Paris when not only is he drinking with his good buddy Rick, but also of course with Ilsa, and they raise their glass to one another. To this day, I do not know whether it was when it was shown in the Jim Crow South whether they excised that particular scene. Um, but that was, uh, you know, because it's Paris and not America, perhaps they allowed it. But you have the scene in which Ilse Lund and Dooley, so so when Ingrid Bergman and uh, Dooley Wilson raised the glass of champagne to one another, um, which was really quite 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 radical and and that that uh, review in the Amsterdam news that I managed to dig up in researching for the book it's it, you know for, for audiences today they may look at and think oh no this is just some kind of caricatured performance that that Dooley Wilson does to brings to Sam but at that time it was really uh, a cause for celebration and a cause for celebration in the African-American community Dooley Wilson was one of the oldest cast members in the film and he was one of the the, the the cast members who who, who died soon after um, the, the the film's debut with him just a, f- a few years, but he he played roles in a cabin in the, in, in the sky and 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 had, uh, other other all black cast, but he never managed to to ha- land another role like Sam. Whose idea was as time goes by? So that was Murray Burnett's all-time favorite song. It was the 1932 recording by Rudy Valley that he heard over and over again while a college student in Cornell, Cornell University. The story goes that apparently he, 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 wore, he listened to it so frequently that he wore down the grooves in the record, and I guess he also drove his fraternity brothers to <laughs> distraction. Um, but that was his favorite. And so from uh, Everybody Comes to Rick's, from the unproduced three-act stage play that he wrote with Joan Allison onward, 
it is part of 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 the of the story. Now, uh, Viennese-born composer Max Steiner did not want to include it. He wanted to compose his own theme for the for the film. Um, Ingrid Bergman had already been cast as Maria and For Whom the Bell Tolls, and she cut off all of her hair. So the the, the chance of doing retakes and and incorporating uh, Max Steiner's own theme was, was suddenly moot. Um, and so he had to make do with it, and and he he works it in beautifully, just as he works in. You know, you can hear bars of the Marseillaise, and you can hear other sort of uh, uh, motifs that, that 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 lace the the uh, the score composed by Max Steiner. Well, we certainly can say that the song has had an afterlife. Yes, I mean, next to Over the Rainbow, I think this is perhaps the 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 most cherished Hollywood theme song ever. Play it once, Sam, for all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Elsa. Play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. Oh, I can't remember it, Miss Elsa. I'm a little rusty on it. I'll hum it for you. Sing it, Sam. You must remember this A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by After the war, how was Casablanca viewed in Germany and Austria? Well, it, it, it's a, that's an excellent question, and there's a, a, uh, a story that goes with it. So what they did in, in uh, West Germany, so the Federal Republic of Germany, um, it wasn't shown in East Germany, but in the Federal Republic of Germany as well as in Austria, is they lopped off 27 minutes of the film and did a highly censored and, and, and uh, truncated version uh, of the film to cut out all references to Nazism. Uh, Victor Laszlo is a is a Norwegian scientist, not the great leader of an <laughs> underground movement. Um, and this was during the Adenauer period in the Federal Republic of Germany. So this is when um, the United States really, really wanted to, to, to prop up West Germany against the the, the the Soviet satellite republics and, 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 and puppet regimes like the German Democratic Republic or East Germany as it was known. So and this so, is in the 1950s. Early exactly. 50s. And this play and this played until the late seventies. That was the version. It was dubbed, twenty seven minutes cut off, um, and this is what you would what you would go and see. So it didn't have the kind of cult following that it had, say, in France or in Italy, and then a bit later in Sweden and, and, and so forth. No, in and, and, and in Portugal, I should say as well, where it had a very ardent following. Um, it, it took until the late 70s when art house cinemas, repertory theaters, would show the film in the English original with, in some cases with German subtitles, in some cases without, but where audiences finally discovered the real Casablanca. <laughs> and then you got an, a, an incredible response. And it's a very, it's a really, a, it is also to this day a, a, a beloved film in, in Germany, the unified Germany now, and Austria. It is just absurd to think about erasing all references to Nazism. Even yeah, I, I mean, I, I that wasn't even denazification. That was just Cold War. Um, I mean, Red Scare politics. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is this isn't just redacting a few lines. No, they really. I mean, you were, you 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 almost cut off the entire soul of the picture with those 27 minutes. And so, uh, yeah, it was um, blasphemous, we might say. <laughs> How does Casablanca bridge generations? You um, include a very touching story uh, about your father-in-law and the sociologist Todd Gitlin's remarks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a favorite picture actually for both of them. Um, my father-in-law was 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 born in what today is the Czech Republic, uh, and he he adored this movie, 
And you would think, and he'd fought with the partisans against the Nazis, he and his father, and survived the war in doing so. Um, you would think that, that Victor Laszlo would be, you know, he'd be with Team Laszlo, so to speak, mm -hmm. but he adored Humphrey Bogart. He was also a man of a somewhat diminutive man of about five feet inches tall, and he always wore his, his trench coat. And I think that Humphrey Bogart, for him, was that great American icon. Uh, and when leaving uh, after the war, finally fleeing uh, uh, Czechoslovakia, making his way to Canada first, to Montreal, and then onward to the U.S., I think that Humphrey Bogart was just that, 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 that role model, that, that, that idol. Now, with Todd Gitlin, Todd Gitlin was one of the, 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 the great leaders of the Students for Democratic Society um, and a, while he was a, a, an undergraduate at, at Harvard. And... Um, he, this was, you know, Harvard was the, the, the place where the, the film really began its, its, uh, its storied revival at the Brattle Theater in Cambridge um, when, when the owners of that, of, that, of, that, of that wonderful movie house decided soon after Bogart passed away to do a Humphrey Bogart series, the, the uh, centerpiece of which was, was, was Casablanca. And students would flock to these, and they would show always. This is very this is an important piece of the story is that they would show it during reading and exam period, and so you had all this pent up energy and students, you know, from studying all day, they would go in the evening, and some would wear you know trench coats and snap rim hats, and uh, it was almost <laughs> it, it anticipates in a way the kind of cult response to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but without the umbrellas and the rice. Um, and so Todd Gitlin went to see this film with the same sort of monastic devotion as many students at Harvard and. Radcliffe did in the late 50s and into the 60s. But for him, as a leader of SDS, he really saw the film. It spoke to him, the, the, the kind of the political, the anti, in his case, it was, you know, it was anti-fascist. And, and, you know, this is in the early days of, 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 of our involvement in, in Southeast Asia um, and also in the free speech movement. So there was a kind of anti-authoritarian bent to it, if you will, or anti uh, tyrannical bent and the way that it was reinterpreted reinterpreted by by Todd Gitlin and, and and company. The other thing that he said to me is he, he grew up here in, in in Brooklyn and it was a favorite of his of his parents and it, it was it formed a certain bond for him with his parents and it was a, a means of of understanding them as well. And so, um, but he said, for instance, you know, he, he was a, a part of a relatively large group of, of students, politically engaged students, who came from New York City and, and were at Harvard um, in, the, in the late 50s, early 60s. And he said that, that uh, when, when certain lines were uttered in the film, for instance, when, when Rick Blaine recommends to Strasser, when he says, well, how would you feel, uh, there's a line that actually doesn't come from Strasser, but it comes from one of the bit players there, how, how would you feel if we, if we marched into, into your you know, New York City? And he says, well, there's certain, certain parts of New York I wouldn't recommend you marching into. And he said they would sit up in the balcony and they would just scream their heads off because they, you know, that was part of the sort of the street tough uh, the, uh, and that sort of gritty New York City, you know, scrappy sensibility and attitude that they felt that they too shared with, with Rick Blaine, you know, with Humphrey Bogart's Rick Blaine. So it was, a, it was definitely a very popular uh, movie for, for students in the 60s. Um, and because it was the film that enjoyed more revival screenings than any other Hollywood film, people had an opportunity to see it. And this, is, this has a, a kind of a corollary as well in the, in the, in the age of television in that it has enjoyed more, more, more airings on, on broadcast TV. And then now, of course, in the age of Turner, broad, you know, TCM, um, which may as well be called the Casablanca channel because <laughs> it seems to be on all the time. You write that you taught your first Casablanca class six years ago. How did your students react? It, yeah, the, you know, you would think that that the the sort of the and I teach at the at the new school in the village, and you would think that these somewhat cynical hipster kind of students wouldn't wouldn't have it in them to respond with the same sort of passion. Um, and 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 with the the same sort of enthusiasm that maybe a generation or two students of a generation or two before them did, and I was completely mistaken. Mm -hmm. And watching the movie, we watched. I taught, so it was a seminar on Casablanca. It was on the films that kind of came before Casablanca that brought about Casablanca, so to speak, and then the you know the many iterations after it. But when watching the film and watching it with them, we watched it twice. Um, 
seeing them respond, for instance, you know, I can't watch and I've seen I'm deep in the triple digits, but I can't watch the Marseillaise uh, scene without getting a little bit misty in the eyes and seeing them kind of t- tear up as well. And, 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 and seeing them respond to the humor of Claude Rains's Captain Renault. Um, and then in, in, a, in a very, very lively discussion after each of those two screenings, uh, getting their take. I was very surprised to read that one of the iconic lines in all of cinema was actually Humphrey Bogart's own. Now, now. He's looking at you, kid. That's that's his own improv. There was not much improvisation done. They hewed really quite closely to the to to the script prepared by the Epstein twins and Howard Koch, among others. Um, but that was a line that that you know Bogart was was uh, purportedly fond of of, of saying, uh, and and they used it. Um, of all the gin joints in all the towns, apparently that also came from Bogey. Oh. I, again, I, it's hard to parse what, what is what is truth, what is legend in this, at this point in time. But um, here's looking at you, kid, for sure. There've been there's enough corroboration. There are enough people who said that that was just a favorite of of Bogey's. Oh. Tell us why you end the book with a reference to Senator Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> I did so not so much to endorse her as a politician, which I look and I'm enormously sympathetic to the work that Elizabeth Warren has done over the years. So it wasn't so much to take a partisan position, but I love the way that she described it and the way that she described it as well. At this moment in time when we're dealing, you know, the film has a new register. It's a new, you know, it's always, I think, a resonant picture, but I think now it resonates in a, in a, in a kind of new context, and that is this context of the refugee crisis that we're facing once more. And so the way that she spoke about that, and this is a very, a very 21st century uh, source for the, for the, for the, uh, the lines that I drawn, it's always on her Facebook page. Um, but I found that it was an appropriate way to end the book, a book that I had completed during that, the, you know, this kind of tumultuous uh, political climate in which we currently find ourselves uh, today. And I loved the, 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 the line that I quote as the very, very last line of the book. She says, each time I watch it, Casablanca gives me hope. Noah Eisenberg is a noted professor of film at the University of Texas, Austin. His book is We'll Always Have Casablanca, the life, legend, and afterlife of Hollywood's most beloved movie. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.